welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. All right. Well, welcome to this week's episode. We're here in the virtual world with Alex Maleshko, manager of Frack Sand at Pan Exchange. Alex, how are you doing this beautiful Friday, man? It looks like you're sitting in a basement. For all the listeners out there, this is not video. This is audio. But being Canadian, I recognize the high window and just like the elements there look like you're in a basement, man. Is that true? That is in fact true. I am Canadian and I am hiding from the elements like many of my brethren back home. <laughs> right on. But yeah, I'm actually coincidentally holed up with my new wife, actually. I just got married down here. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's been it's been really fun. Coronavirus, you know, as devastating as it's been, it's had a lot of great benefits in terms of, you know, the, the work from home environment and also, you know, getting to spend more time with your your loved ones. So it's it's been yeah. a lot of fun and cool to kind of be with her while she's transitioning to move down to Denver where we're, we're based out of. So, right. Right. So it's interesting because like, did you live with your fiance before or like, what did that look like? Yeah. So we actually never lived together. We'd spend a lot of time at, at each other's places and stuff, but I actually met her when I was at school, Montana tech and she's, you know, sort of Montana local. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So, and I asked that because most of the time, you know, if like, I find that a lot of couples, when they go on vacations together or they spend a lot of time together, they want to rip each other's head off. So not only did you get married, it's like, let's suck you guys in together and not let you leave each other for however long it's been. So it's like, this is a true test of your guys' relationship. So hopefully you make it out alive and it sounds like you guys are pursuing the move. So seems like everything's going pretty good. Oh, yeah. And I mean, with all the stress going on, the fact we can, you know, laugh about something every day, like no matter how ridiculous it is. Yeah. I mean, that's a, just a great sign in, in my book. So yeah, no, right on, man. Well, that's great. Before we get going, I do want to highlight some neat technology provided by our new sponsor, which is Technip FMC. So in an effort to minimize non-productive time and total cost of ownership on the frack pad, Technip has shown proven results with their super frack large bore check valve system. This modular hydraulic fracturing check valve has superior low pressure sailing capabilities and customizable for any frack pad. So if you want to discover more for all the listeners out there, click the link in the show notes and a big shout out to Technip FMC. They've been a great supporter of the show. They're up to some really cool things. So I really wanted to give them a moment of time on this. And also, if you like coffee and you don't want to pay for it, I've got a deal for you. Once this quarantine's over, I'm offering to pay for a coffee for anyone that leaves a review. I always enjoy engaging with the audience and who are supporting the show. And if not, that's cool too. I'm extremely grateful that you're even listening. So Alex, we actually met through fellow Canadian, John Giesbrecht, who is also on the show. And a big shout out to Johnny. He's just a stand-up guy. And so... How do you know? Is it from school or did you know him before then? Yeah. So we coincidentally met at school down in Montana Tech, you know, both Canadians, both, you know, trying something new with the petroleum engineering program. And 
yeah, like I say, you know, what stood out to John to me was just sort of the work hard, play hard mentality and just sort of a zest for adventure, I guess. I was, I was definitely, yeah. kind of, I've definitely kind of adopted that, especially since I've, you know, made the move down to the United States and it's been a wild ride, but it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, no, that's good, man. John's a great dude. And I don't know if he listens to the show, but if he does, a big shout out to you, John. He's got a great story of how he just like picked his bags up and left. I remember he was telling me he was in Canada and then it was like right before New Year's, he drove down in a big Penske van, parked it in San Antonio and like didn't know where he was, what he was doing. And just decides to like rip to the bar in the Penske van after he got keys to his apartment. Like he's such a, he's just so off the wall, but he's such a good guy and he cleans up well. He's a stud salesman. And again, I have nothing but great things to say about John. So I was bugging you, man, because your profile pic looks like you should be on Shark Tank or something. And then when you popped into my screen, I'm like, well, he's got a little facial hair. You, you look totally different than your profile pic. Yeah. So that's funny, dude. Yeah, I've been uh, grow, growing the coronavirus mustache here. So it's, yeah, yeah it's been, been an interesting time for sure. But <laughs> no. great time to experiment with facial hair. Yeah, yeah, exactly, man. No worries. But speaking of Shark, do you watch Shark Tank? Have you ever seen that show? Obviously, I'm sure you have. Yeah, I've definitely flipped through a few episodes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So speaking of shows, man, are you guys like big on the whole Netflix binging thing? Did you guys through the quarantine? Did you watch any crazy shows or what? Yeah, definitely a few. All American was a pretty good one. Yeah. Deadly is another one that I've been kind of recently getting into a little bit. So what about Tiger King? Oh, Tiger King. <laughs> <laughs> our office coincidentally has some some florida locals like from that area no way yeah so they're very well versed on the topic of tiger king so yeah you know it's funny so i'm in the drilling fluids space and we've got infrastructure and warehouses and stuff in oklahoma and we have a, an office in edmond oklahoma and whenever i talk to like the people from there i'm like oh yes are you in, you know Joey Exotic hanging out today and like, i just give them the gears because i think it's so funny and they all hate it they're like they painted such a terrible picture of people from Oklahoma and if you didn't know you would think Oklahoma is like the most backwards twisted place on the face of the earth man yeah but it's actually pretty it's a good state Oklahoma City's awesome Tulsa's awesome anyway yeah I had to bring it up man because I think it's so funny but anyway so tell us again you're from Canada right which part of Canada are you from bud yeah I'm from Calgary Alberta born and raised you know for the Americans I guess listening in it's just straight north of, of Montana yeah you drive from the border so you were born in Calgary yeah correct okay which part of Calgary did you grow up in I'm from Calgary so obviously we're gonna get going on some topics here that people probably don't know about but then nonetheless yeah. what part of Calgary are you from yeah so I was from the southwest part in a community I mostly grew up in a community called Canyon Meadows or is the Canyon Meadows kids like to call it canyon ghettos <laughs> okay it's actually not a ghetto or anything but we just so it's not like the northeast no no a little no nicer <laughs> yeah no it's a, it's a little nicer we just we're just a bunch of wannabes i guess you know there you go that's funny actually so for people who aren't familiar with calgary it's split in quadrants so you have the northwest the southwest and then the northeast and southeast and the northwest and the southwest are a little bit more suburbia you know, it's a nice pair. And, and granted, there's some nice parts on the east side, but the northeast, it's an interesting place. And if you're familiar with Edmonton, it reminds me of Mill Woods. And so I always kind of joke around, you know, which quadrant you're from in Calgary, because I think it tells a lot about the people. But I mean, I've got love for Calgary, regardless if you're from, you know, north, south, east, west, it doesn't matter. But I was born in Calgary. And my mom and I lived close to downtown. Then we moved to BC when I was five. And then when I was 18, moved back to Alberta to work drilling rigs. And then I lived in like, basically, if you were to take Richmond Ave all the way west into West Hills, I had a little condo in West Hills there. And that was kind of my stomping grounds until I moved down to the States. But, you know, I kind of miss it, but I don't. I went back there. I was there for a meeting, actually. 
yeah, I was there for a meeting with Chevron like two months ago and it was just depressing, man. Like I just, it felt weird and granted everywhere right now feels a little depressing, but it was a different energy and I miss it because it's, it's somewhat of home. But now I, I have to say, I call Texas home, man. But do you miss Calgary? Like, do you ever see yourself moving back? At this point, you know, no, especially since, you know, I just got married down here and everything. I think Denver is going to be home for the foreseeable, at least next few years anyway. Yeah. You know, I definitely miss parts of Calgary. Like I definitely miss the Calgary Stampede. I mean, shout out to the Calgary Stampede. I mean, that's just yeah. a cool event. <laughs> yeah. But definitely don't miss the cold. I'm as Canadian as I am. I just can't handle it very well. Yeah, I know. That's funny you say that because everyone down here when it gets cold, they're always like, oh, you must be loving it. And I'm like, I moved close to the equator for a reason, not to get because I like cold, just because I like warmth. And then I'm like that crazy idiot outside with my shirt off mowing my own lawn when it's like 100 degrees. I'm like, this is awesome. Like I'm mowing my lawn, and it's sunny out. And like everyone down here is like, are you nuts, man? But when they realize I'm Canadian, they're like, oh yeah, you're one of those weirdos. But <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's always something to laugh about because the perception of people down here about Canadians that we love the cold, which if we're down here, chances are we really don't. But Denver's cool. I lived there in 2013. 2012, 2013. And it reminds me of Calgary actually a lot because it's it's all consolidated. Everything oil and gas related is downtown. Then you've got all the activities there. And then you got the mountains that are out west. So everything's kind of like there. So my question for you is like, did you always want to get to the States or was that something that just kind of organically happened? Or can you touch on that? Yeah, I think it was something that really just organically happened. You know, I think kind of you know, as a, I guess like a teenager, I really had no idea what, what I was, I was going to do, where I was going to live. I was definitely a pretty adventurous person, but I really had no sort of concept of where I'd go. I think a lot of that stemmed from the fact that, you know, at the time Calgary was really booming and it seemed like it was sort of the place to kind of be and stay. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, with a downturn in the market, it cast a bit of doubt on that. And I think it, it sort of paved the way, I guess, to be a bit more adventurous and, and try a new place. So I wasn't really always like officially like, you know, driven to, you know, move to one certain place or, or another. It was just something, I guess, that happened organically. Yeah, no, that's pretty cool, man. So you actually have a pretty interesting journey with regards to your careers, which part of that includes working with RS Energy Group as a research assistant. Associate. Yeah, associate. Can you tell us about that experience? Because I think a lot of people, especially the listeners, are more on the technical or sort of like the engineering operations side of things. So coming up from someone who went to Montana Tech for petroleum engineering, the natural transition is to become like, you know, whether it's like reservoir engineer, production engineer, drilling engineer. I mean, and there's tons of other ones, but just in general, I think that's a lot of like people's initiatives when they get into the program. So tell us about that side of the business. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, what was interesting was, you know, through kind of my you know, work placements in my work experience, I was actually exposed more to sort of the, I guess, the interface between engineering and, and financial markets, because oftentimes there's a bit of a language gap there. Yeah. And, and you're seeing more and more now that people on sort of the financial side are really hungry for information and they want to be a lot more informed as to what they're investing in or, or what they're transacting in or what they're involved with. Right. So yeah, at RS, what was really kind of an interesting take was, my role was as a research associate for the better part of the year, I supported buy side equity research. So people who are actually just investing in, in oil and gas. And is that people or companies? Yeah. People who would invest in companies or companies who would invest in an oil and gas company. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. And yeah. So basically we provided a lot of the, the analytical context in addition to the financial context. So again, it was kind of that, that interface and that balance that I alluded to earlier. 
and so RS, which was interesting, was they were owned by like a sixty billion dollar private equity fund called Warburg Pincus. So they're headquartered in in New York and Manhattan. And what was interesting with them is, with a lot of research, there's sometimes an incentive to, I guess, sort of spur a transaction or to do something where it would generate revenue for a bank, because oftentimes equity research associates work at a bank. But for us, we remained independent, provide sort of that unbiased research and, and something that was a little bit more technically driven that they, you know, basically industry couldn't get elsewhere. And now, you know, RS has recently partnered or actually kind of merged together with within Veris, which had a lot of, you know, really strong data and digital capabilities. So I think that's kind of a really interesting move for them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then I made the move to Pan Exchange down in Denver kind of on the commodity side. Right. So talking a little bit about your previous experience, is that sort of the way that they look at data, the way they look at the market? I mean, obviously over the last, shoot, at least five years, Wall Street has completely taken a dump on oil and gas. Naturally so. Obviously the return on the investment for a lot of people has been poor, but is that shifting like how they evaluate or is that a different element of the finance side? Like, can you touch a little bit about that or is that out of the scope? Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I think it's kind of a, a really interesting time. I think that historically, you know, companies have placed a lot more of a focus on sort of growing production and, and growing size. Whereas now I think the pressure is on them to, I think, you know, sort of live within cash flow and making sure that they're on side with the covenants on their debt and making sure that you know, you know, they're not kind of getting too over leveraged or anything like that. I think that's sort of a, a really big focus point for the people, especially from the lending side and, and from the investment side. I think also for them, like as much as, you know, the, the sentiment is kind of soured toward these companies, I think that, you know, the people who are serious and want to remain, you know, invested in energy, I think, you know, the real trend has been the trend towards being more informed investors and really kind of dialing in and having a bit more of kind of an active role in managing the investment rather than a passive one. And, gotcha. and that really stems from, you know, getting knowledge from people like engineers and geologists and people who have not only access to the data, but a real fundamental understanding of the data that's in front of them. Mm -hmm. Okay. No, that makes sense. So you mentioned, obviously you made the transition. What made you, or what I guess interested you in making a transition from that group to now Pan Exchange? Was there just a good opportunity or tell us about really what was the incentive there for you? Yeah, it was it was a really good opportunity in terms of, you know, getting an opportunity in a different country, you know, it was kind of a, a smaller company, but really in high growth mode, which is something I'd definitely been interested in. I was actually interested in sort of a firm like that, like smaller and high growth. I was, you know, kind of, I guess, inspired by a friend of mine who coincidentally worked at RS Energy before me. His name's Henry Sue. He's actually working at a startup in the Bay and they're oh, cool. called Embark Trucks. And they actually have the largest autonomous like semi truck freight route in the world that they're testing on what? and they're building all these like really cool like autonomous vehicle technology sort of things associated with sort of the the freight side of things rather than just sort of like general locomotion so yeah and he said it was just a really great experience he had a, a short stint at McKinsey before making the move down to the bay he just said you know there was definitely pros and cons with kind of a smaller firm that's high growth but he said it's it's nonetheless super exciting it's definitely something you you should definitely experience in this lifetime so I kind of took that advice and ran with it Nice. Good for you. Well, it's interesting. I mean, with regards to risk, I'm assuming you did your due diligence to de-risk it as much as possible, but in your position, you know, young, I'm assuming you don't have any kids. So yeah. So it's, it's like, you know, the world is yours and you really have nothing holding you back. No, not to say kids hold you back, but your judgment and how you evaluate making decisions 
is altered because you have your family that's relying on you. So it's not all about you, 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 but man, that that's interesting. So tell us about pan exchange. I looked, you know, at the website and kind of, there's three arms. It almost looks like, so can you describe what pan exchange is as a company and then, you know, how you fit in and kind of what your day to day is and, and really how that, you know, what you do kind of affects and influences the market, you know, on that. Yeah, no, definitely. So like you mentioned earlier, so I'm a petroleum engineer by schooling and I work as a manager at Pan Exchange for their frac sand division. And so strangely enough, it is actually a commodities trading firm, not like an ENP, not an OFL service. And really what we have is sort of this institutional grade trading platform. So in simpler terms, it's an online marketplace or ecosystem where people can buy and trade products. So one of the main ones we trade on our platform is Fraxan. And so we're actually the industry leading platform to trade Fraxan. And we also provide sort of the de facto industry benchmark pricing and index pricing for Fraxan. So okay. the way I'd like to think of that is, is kind of like the WTI index for oil, except for Fraxan. And then we also provide advisory on, you know, the volume and the prices that are going on the market with respect to Fraxan and sort of the, the overarching energy markets. So my job really as an engineer and someone who has some capital markets experience, but has an engineering background is really to provide context with what's going on with respect to the volume that's moving of Fraxan on the platform and sort of overall in the US lower 48 and also the prices and, and really kind of the technical side behind that is, is really kind of the primary role for me because we are sort of a, I guess like not to say small, but sort of a high growth firm. I think, you know, at times it's a bit of a Swiss army knife role. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's been sort of one of the most fun things. It's just, you know, every day has been different. And it's really exciting working with, you know, kind of the group that I have been learned a lot from them. Yeah, yeah. No, that's cool. So I've got a good buddy who used to work at High Crush. And, you know, I have a few contacts on the frac side of things. So and because I'm ignorant to this market and, and what you're talking about, but so you have a company like High Crush or any, you know, frac sand selling company who have their their minds perhaps, and so maybe some do, some don't, but how does what you do fit into that to then the end user? Like, can you kind of help bridge the gap for me? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, an end user typically would be like an EMP or an oil field service company that's buying the sand and then providing service for the EMP. Some EMPs actually buying the frac sand directly now. Yeah. And obviously the net seller would be a company like High Crush or, you know, any of the frac sand producers in the U.S. So, for us, we basically have sort of a centralized exchange where they can actually transact in real time. You know, exchanges at 24-7. We're not sort of bound by market hours. And all of the actual transaction is facilitated really seamlessly and digitally. There's not sort of a paper exchange with, with contracts or anything like that. Some of the other advantages that we have too is, you know, we have the capabilities to actually allow companies to hedge their price risk. So for example, let's say you have a long-term contract and you're, you know, confident that the price is going to change with time, you can actually have the, the price like scale against like an index or a benchmark price. The other thing you can do is with some of the data and some of the instruments that you could create off of the data from our platform, you can also create a contract for locking in a price when it's at a low if you're a buyer or vice versa if, if you're a seller to make sure that you're, you're selling your product or buying your product at the most competitive price possible. And I think, you know, for a consumable product like Fraxan, where, you know, there's billions of pounds of this stuff purchased every year apart from, well, I mean, even still in, in COVID-19, I mean, it's such a, a massive market for this stuff because of, mm -hmm. you know, the increase in sort of the unconventional side of oil and gas, you know, that becomes an increasingly important sort of cost to focus on, especially now when, 
you know, there's much more sort of a, a stringent oversight from the financial types. So yeah, so I mean, we work with, you know, both counterparties, buyers and sellers. And we also, what's interesting is we have basically a system where we have uh, counterpart management, meaning that we have systems in place that allow for, you know, if someone was to default or something like that, we have sort of provisions in place to make sure that, you know, not only we have like vetted market participants who are who are legit in terms of buying and selling, but there's actually an exchange in place to make sure that the transaction goes smoothly and no one leaves that empty-handed or with hurt feelings. Yeah, no, that's pretty interesting. So because obviously the hydraulic horsepower and the amount of frack activity is substantially reduced right now. I mean, in some areas, I mean, it's at like 20% of what it was, say, a couple of years ago. Does the volume of, say, frack sand being pumped throughout the U.S. change your scope? I mean, or the volume of actual work that you have to do? Or is it more like it because it's like a commodity, you're just monitoring that? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously, the, the size of the market changes with respect, you know, that obviously, there's a lot less frat crews active in the United States right now with commodity prices for oil, where they're at right now. For example, like, I mean, in 2019, there was, you know, well over 350 on average, like frat crews active in the United States in any given time. And right now there's like less than 50, yeah, like 47 as of last week, based on the primary vision, like frat spread count. So yeah, I mean, naturally there's going to be lower volume, but at the same time too, I think people are, are also hungrier for information and for content and, and really context as to, Hey, like, you know, how is this recovery going to materialize? Like, how do we kind of have sort of a longer horizon view as to what's going in the market? Like for example, when times were better, for example, we looked at a well spacing study done by Concho down in the Permian. It was called the Dominator. And what happened with them was their results stated to them that, hey, we shouldn't be drilling as many, you know, wells per section, or we should space them a little bit further apart. So naturally, given, you know, a limited amount of land, there's less wells in their inventory to drill and frack. So naturally, in terms of long-term demand forecast, that would actually be detrimental to a company that would be selling to them, right? So yeah. to have that, that type of sort of context long-term to really be able to make a plan, especially when things are a little bit less uncertain, you know, on that front, things have definitely been busy and just kind of trying to maintain those relationships and, you know, to make sure that, you know, everybody's taken care of and has the information that they need. Very cool. No, that's interesting. I was ripping through your LinkedIn and then I actually clicked on the Pan Exchange one. Can you talk a little bit about how, Pan Exchange is leveraging data to optimize hydraulic fracturing using machine learning. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's that's kind of an interesting topic. So, we actually wrote just kind of like a freebie article on that. And, and really what it is, is there's a couple of different ways you could optimize a completion design, right? Like one would be just through a historical analog, like, hey, you know, this worked at this nearby well or this well with similar parameters. And that's great, but you can only look at so many variables at one time. And then there's also like these really detailed, like, physics-based simulations that you can run using like some pretty advanced software packages, right? But at the same time with those, those can be quite intensive in terms of the computing runtime, in terms of the labor that goes into them. And really, you know, it doesn't always give you sort of necessarily all of the drivers that are going into something. And then when you have something like machine learning where you can pick and choose the features that are really going to be the key drivers for something like that. And, you know, you can also, you know, sort of lower your runtime with respect to say something like a simulation, you really have sort of a lot more capabilities in terms of, I think like, I, I guess optimizing 
completions with the data that you have, especially since the completions in the hydraulic fracturing side is, is the largest cost component for, for upstream oil and gas. And one of the great things that I learned about making any kind of model, whether it's a, a machine learning model or you know, writing a script or anything like that to manipulate data is that you know, your outputs are only as good as your inputs. Yeah. And you might have a really great model, but you know, if your inputs aren't really you know, grounded in anything, then you know, your, your output is kind of meaningless. So for us, like we provide really regular frequency pricing for Fraxan, which historically has, has actually come down quite a bit, especially since new mines have opened up down in the Permian. And there's been, you know, like a huge oversupply, especially yeah. with a product that, you know, is sand, right? It doesn't expire. It can just sit on the shelf indefinitely. And so with respect to that, you know, having like a good quality input on something like that, when you're trying to sort of optimize production and minimize the cost component of the largest capital spend in oil and gas, where every well costs several million dollars. I mean, that's, that's definitely kind of an exciting thing and, and definitely something that I think people should be looking at more closely. So did you guys create that content to create awareness around that? Or is that something that you guys are directly working with to help customers as a service? Yeah. So, I mean, machine learning obviously has been like a really popular thing in, in oil and gas as of late, as it has been in a lot of other markets, right? And, and all kind of the predictive analytics capabilities. Yeah. And, you know, that's nothing new. But I think what is new, I guess, is having sort of a more solid input with regards to optimizing completions and, and hydraulic fraction with these machine learning capabilities, like a source of data that that really helps them to kind of sort of narrow that window of uncertainty for them. That makes sense. So for your job and what you do, what do you actually really enjoy the most about your job currently? I think the the part that I enjoy the most is just the fact that, you know, I'm not dealing with one kind of person all the time. You know, I get to deal with you know, and with previous jobs too, that have been kind of at that interface between engineering and financial markets, I get to deal with engineers, I get to deal with geologists, but, you know, I also get to deal with people who are in the private equity side, who are at investment banks, who are, you know, at hedge funds, you know, even at, you know, at Pan Exchange, right? Like, you know, a lot of our employee base came from vastly different backgrounds than I ever did. You know, for example, we also trade like industrial hemp on our, yeah. our platform, which was newly like federally legalized in, I think it was December, 2018. Yeah. So we started shortly after that. And, you know, there are people who had backgrounds in fertilizer trading. Our CEO had a, a really strong background in sugar trading. So, I mean, it, it's really quite interesting to kind of bring sort of the oil and gas side and to learn from, from other people who are just not sort of a little bit different, but a lot different than yourself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that's kind of one of the coolest things from a learning perspective. And, you know, at Pan Exchange, it's, it's really been fun because it's, it's a bit smaller. It's, it's much more like family-like, I think. And, you know, we all kind of embody the work hard, play hard mentality and it's really young it's really fun and i know we're always we're always laughing about something at the end of the week so yeah no that's great man i like to hear that it's it's interesting actually that topic of you know for oil and gas because like historically we're used to working with people that are, are in oil and gas and any outsiders you know are kind of looked down upon because most people for a long time the only people who liked oil and gas were people who, who were in oil and gas and so to be able to kind of cross thread with other industries, with other talents, with other technologies and adopting things to kind of help give an outside perspective while looking through a different lens to help come up with different solutions, I think is going to be something that's going to catapult our industry on a number of fronts. So it's neat to see that you get to have exposure to different elements with regards to you know commodity trading because ultimately it affects everything. So that's neat, man. And I'm sure 
you know, as time goes on, I would imagine you guys are going to take on other ones. But I guess the question is like, what does the future look like for Pan Exchange? Like you said, you got the hemp and then you've got the frac sand. I think there was another one I saw in there, but is it the plan just to continue to pack on more commodities to your platform or how does, what does that look like? Yeah. So, I mean, the focus of Pan Exchange right now is we tend to focus on nascent physical commodities. So, so for those who don't know what nascent means, cause I sure didn't, I actually had to Google it. Like when I was you know, applying. Nascent basically means like a commodity and it's like budding stages. So for example, there was no sort of organized medium of exchange for frac sand, or there was never one for hemp since, well, it wasn't legal until December, 2018. Right. And so obviously we're not going to compete with a large exchange like, like CME or something like that. Let's say the Chicago mercantile exchange for, for trading crude oil. I mean, that's a huge global trade. Like there's no way, you know, a smaller company is even going to come close to competing with that. But we are focused on commodities in their budding stages in terms of providing sort of more of a transparent and, and functioning market for commodities oh, yeah. like that. Interesting. So if something is right now that's kind of either niche or boutique, but then ultimately ends up coming into a commodity category, then you guys would hopefully scoop up that whatever product it is and, and, and adopt it into your guys's program or whatever right and for certain types of commodities like i had mentioned earlier with fraxan i mean there's definitely a demand for price discovery like people want to know you know especially in oil and gas like what their input costs are obviously right so they want to have transparency they want to be able to lock in prices they want to have sort of flexibility with the types of contracts they can use to buy these products and and same with hemp right you know someone who is buying you know hemp biomass or hemp crude oil that's you know, going to be, you know, made into some sort of refined product, they want to be able to, you know, manage their supply chain from that point of view and and have all the tools at their disposal that they want, especially in some of these markets that, you know, maybe don't have an organized exchange, but are really budding and and becoming sort of, you know, a large demand hot topic item, right? Yeah, interesting. So if you had a crystal ball, what's, I mean, the next thing to become commoditized that you're interested in? Does that ever cross your mind? Or or is that like proprietary for you guys? I mean, how we actually evaluate something that we should commoditize or shouldn't is kind of proprietary, but Oh, okay. But it's so tough to say. I mean, you know, there's stuff that, you know, we think, hey, maybe this could be commoditized, but there's also sort of the market forces and they're not always a hundred percent rational, right? Yeah. So it's really tough to say. I mean, there's so many things that you know, that could, but maybe asking the question may have been not the right thing. Cause it sounds like for you guys, that gives you a competitive advantage and helps you guys get into the market. Like if you know, there's some like underground thing happening, that's going to become commoditized. Like I would imagine if you guys identified that, that would help create your business, right? Yes. And no. I mean, if something's that underground and there's not really any large amount of demand for it. I mean, there's not going to be that much trading volume and then that wouldn't create much revenue for an exchange that let's say gets a cut of that. Right. So again, right. There's a bunch of criteria that we look for. So niche and in its budding stages doesn't necessarily mean it's something that's so underground and obscure. It just means that there's something that, you know, perhaps doesn't have necessarily an organized or transparent medium of exchange to actually, you know, get the data that people need to actually construct contracts and, and manage their supply chain. Interesting, man. That's, that's pretty cool. Like I said, a lot of the questions I have are just based on genuine curiosity. So, but man, it sounds like you're up to some pretty cool stuff and I know we're coming up close to 45 minutes here. So I want to respect your time, but before we log out, man, I always like to close out with a few little personal questions. So one that I've been asking lately that that's kind of interesting is when's the last time you've tried something for the first time? Oh, that's definitely a good question. Last time, the first time. I mean, in terms of something substantial, I mean... It doesn't have to be substantial. 
Yeah, I guess fairly recently, I think it's just sort of looking at like things like learning how to do things online, like learning how to make an app or something like that, even through YouTube videos. So, you know, coronavirus has been like kind of a really cool opportunity to just learn stuff, I guess, because you have so much downtime, you know, you're not doing your daily commute, especially with work from home, stuff like that. So, I mean, I think it's just been honestly like learning. One of the, one of the things I've been trying to learn how to do is actually like write an app just. No way. Just for fun. Yeah. So what kind of app? Any app? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not that far along yet, admittedly. Okay. <laughs> no, that's cool, man. Well, uh, whenever you launch the app, let me know. I'll download it and give it a five-star review, man. Oh, yeah. Probably yeah. one star after, with how many glitches, how new I am at it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got to start somewhere, man. One last question I was going to ask here. What's something about you that not many people know about? You got any interesting hobbies or things outside of the old commodity trading thing that you like to do? You know, I think for me, a couple of things and coincidentally, actually, some of the hobbies, I think almost tied into sort of the commodity trading and how I actually got to where I'm at. Okay, is I'm a big hands on person. When I was in school, I mean, I didn't just sort of, you know, go to these like club meetings and, you know, kind of pay my $5 or $10 to be a part of a club. I mean, I got really involved. You know, john was the same way, you know, who was previously on the show another shout out. Yeah, to one of our main guys. For example, there was like a trap shoot. I mean, you know, when I first got to school down in Montana Tech, I mean, I was, you know, in there like cleaning up shotgun shells out of the dirt. I got involved really early. I started a club at school. I mean, you know, we were industry funded to go to, you know, Harvard Business School and network with people in kind of the financial world. Wow. We got to look at cases. I mean, we got invited to this like super swanky networking event where, you know, we were on the 50th floor of this skyscraper. It was called Top of the Hub in downtown Boston. I mean, you know, there are other students who, you know, went to Dubai on, on sort of conference travel. I mean, you know, stuff like that, I think, you know, as a hobby was just sort of getting this hands-on experience and traveling to places and and learning about stuff. I think that was kind of the the coolest thing that, you know, as a hobby, but also kind of related into my career, because I don't think I would have gotten where I got if I didn't have that hands-on experience or I didn't network or I didn't learn the things I did from the people that I did. Yeah. I wouldn't have, you know, been able to do that if I wasn't involved. So I think, in terms of hobbies, I mean, there were so many things I got to do with, with respect to that. I mean, you know, at school, I got to help, you know, run the blood drive. I mean, you know, help clean up the side of the highway in Montana to keep it looking pretty. <laughs> yeah, good for you, man. Well, I think that speaks volumes for, for who you are and, and your character and obviously has played a huge role in your success. But I think that's also important for sort of the young listeners out there who are either in school or who have recently graduated, but that is extremely important is exposing yourself, building relationships, building a reputation amongst a certain network. Because right now, especially it's like, you can't just sit on the sidelines and pump out resumes. And and just because you got a degree, someone's going to come to you and say, we want you, but to continue to put yourself out there and do the things like you did with school, traveling, getting in front of, you know, high quality individuals, was extremely important. And so, yeah, man, I applaud you for that. And I think that's something that you and John actually both kind of share in common. And I know he's not afraid to get out there and, and network. And it's cool to see, you know, the younger generation. And I say that I'm young too, but you guys are slightly, you know, younger than I am, but it's good to see. And I think that's just a message that needs to be continued to be relayed to the younger generation, the up and comers. So, but man, it's been an absolute pleasure here. So before we take off here. I actually want to take a moment to tell everyone about some OGGN events. Hey everybody, Alex here with the events on deck. So due to current circumstances, of course, we are not able to have any in-person events. So I have nothing of that nature to update you guys on. 
but we have been hosting some virtual events. So OGGN is wanting to offer free webinars, live happy hours, etc. during this time. Since these events are not scheduled out as far in advance as in-person events, we would like to keep you guys updated via Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So be sure to keep checking up on that and we'll keep you guys posted on anything we're offering. It has been free. We want to offer you guys value during this time that we're all at home. So please continue checking in and joining us for these virtual events. We are looking forward to seeing you guys whenever we're able to have in-person events and hope you're staying safe and sound. Awesome. Thank you. And anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. And if you're looking to get in shape for spring and summer, visit KTX Fit in Katy, Texas and get a free trial by telling one of the coaches I sent you. Alex, man, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's always good to get behind the mic with another Canadian. But if people are interested in your story or, or just simply want to reach out to network, what's the best way? Is, is LinkedIn good or, or what do you suggest? Yeah, LinkedIn's really easy. And then, you know, if, if someone wants an email or someone wants, you know, a phone for a text or something like that, you know, it's always sort of a, a great kind of jumping off point. So, I mean, LinkedIn's always easy. Perfect. Well, I'll put your LinkedIn link in the show notes along with the Pan Exchange website link. That way, if anyone's curious on, you know, finding out a little more information or just checking it out, I'll do that too. So man, is there any closing last words or any message you'd like to relay to the listeners? Yeah. You know, I think the biggest thing is just don't be afraid to, you know, try something different. And, you know, I think it worked out just wonders for me. It's, it's been a great ride. And, you know, a lot of people think like getting involved and doing all this stuff, it seems like a chore, but in actuality, when you actually get down to it and you actually get your hands on it, it's actually a lot of fun. So don't get discouraged and, you know, just, just keep plowing away. Awesome, man. Well, I certainly want to keep in touch, Alex. And again, if you're ever down in Houston, let me know. And everyone out there, always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Woo. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.